I'm Marshall Kozlov, and this is Arsenal of Democracy. Today's episode, I'm joined by my Hudson Institute colleague, Riley Walters. Riley is a senior fellow, and he covers Taiwan, looking at the issue through the lens of national security, technology policy, and economics. There was a lot of interest about what it means if there was some sort of contingency with China. Uh, you know, what would happen if there's, uh, say, a, a PLA blockade around Taiwan, or if there was just an outright invasion where uh, war happened and we can no longer access the chips that China, uh, Taiwan makes. Um, and uh, an estimate we came up, I uh, came up with, was um, yeah, pretty significant. If if the world were to lose access, if the United States were to lose access to the chips made in Taiwan, it could be uh, far worse than what we experienced during COVID, far worse than what we experienced uh, during, say, the Great Recession, uh, the Great Financial Recession of 20, 2009. So pretty significant. About 8% uh, of U.S. GDP would be uh, uh, at risk. Riley also just moderated an event at Hudson focused on unpacking the Taiwan election earlier this month. So to learn more about that, you should click the link in the show notes. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. See you all next time. Riley Walters, welcome to Arsenal of Democracy. Thank you for having me. Great to have you, Riley. So we're going to obviously get into Taiwan, the election, what it means for Taiwan itself and for the United States this year. But first, because you're a Hudson colleague, and I'm sure we'll be featuring your voice more on the show this year, how about you introduce yourself and the work you do at Hudson? Uh, well, my official title, I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson. Um, I work uh, primarily with the Japan chair on some of our uh, Northeast Asian uh, issues, but I also cover Taiwan a lot. Uh, I like to say, you know, a lot of my work is an intersection of economics, technology, and national security. So whenever there's an issue around, uh, say, trade or geopolitics or, or, or things that affect uh, global supply chains, it's, it's generally uh, an interest of mine. And so I'll, I'll uh, sometimes comment on those issues. Yeah, I'd love to hear then maybe an articulation of why this intersection of economics, technology, and national security means something, especially in this Taiwan and Japan context for folks? Uh, you know, so my, my background is in economics, uh, which is funny. So I, my, academically, I studied economics. I have a master's in, in, in economics. Um, and then uh, for whatever reason, I decided to enter the think tank world. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's where I kind of ended up picking up more of this uh, sort of national security, geopolitical foreign policy perspective. And uh, I also uh, historically have an interest in Japan. I lived in Japan for a couple of years. And so that's sort of where the North, Northeast Asia uh, thing side of things comes in. And so, you know, for Japan and uh, Taiwan, two uh, very small islands in, in, in the Northeast Pacific, or sorry, Northeast Asia in the Pacific, where, which rely heavily on uh, international trade and investment, economics is very much tied to geopolitics. And so uh, for the Japanese and the Taiwanese, whenever, uh, let's say, they, they like to say whenever uh, the United States and China are going uh, at each other's throats, uh, it definitely affects a lot of the business sentiment uh, in their countries. And so, uh, as you can imagine, there's a lot of business interest in, in geopolitics. And so, um, it's definitely an exciting world, especially, uh, I think today there's, there's definitely a lot more interest in sort of the, how 
economics intersects with foreign policy. Yeah, and I think speaking of Taiwan, obviously, then the main thing that folks will be really interested in here is just the unpacking of the election results. You earlier in the day did an event at Hudson featuring uh, multiple folks discussing uh, the Taiwan election results. I'd love for you as the moderator to give us a quick readout, not only who you featured in the conversation, but what the different angles were that were really relevant to unpack the issue. Yeah, happy to. So yeah, uh, we hosted an event today called A Look at uh, Taiwan's Election Results. We had uh, Bonnie Glazer from the German Marshall Fund, Ryan Haas from Brookings Institute, and Russell Shao from Global Taiwan Institute. And uh, each of them took a respective, uh, their own respective view on the Taiwan's election results. Bonnie spoke about how uh, it affects U.S.-Taiwan uh, relations. Um, you know, I think she's definitely optimistic about how uh, within the United States, there's certainly bipartisan support for Taiwan, but what it means for Taiwan, given the uh, results of the election, uh, there's definitely, I think, a need for more uh, bipartisan dialogue, not just uh, within the United States, but within Taiwan as well, uh, regarding the U.S.-Taiwan relations. And so I'll get to the results of the election in just a minute that might kind of help clarify her point of view. Uh, the second was Ryan Haas. Uh, he looked at this from the Taiwan-China side of things, uh, cross-strait relations, as we often call it. And uh, for, the, uh, for, for his point of view is, um, you know, the, the way that Taiwan politics sort of uh, uh, rolled out, I guess, over the election, uh, the KMT, the Kuomintang, which has traditionally been the party uh, that is sort of seen as uh, pro-engagement with China, uh, they did not win the presidency, but they did sort of start to pick up seats uh, in Taiwan's legislative body. And so it's a bit of back and forth about how Beijing might interpret this. Uh, on the one hand, uh, obviously, Beijing is going to have less, I'll say influence, but I don't want to, I don't want people to perceive this as meaning, uh, you know, influence in the sense that Beijing has a say in how Taiwan, Taiwan policy is made or how uh, Taiwan is governed, but influence in the, in the, in the ability of Beijing to have more dialogue. So, with Taipei. And so uh, with the DPP winning the presidential office, uh, it means that Beijing won't have as open of a dialogue, a road to dialogue uh, with the Taiwan's president's uh, office. But uh, uh, on the inverse of that, sort of the flip side of that, given that the KMT did pick up seats in Taiwan's legislative body, you know, maybe there is hope that, uh, at least from Beijing's perspective, that Taiwan isn't completely lost uh, from sort of the, uh, the the greater argument that Beijing makes, which is Taiwan is simply just a province of of, of China destined to be reunified with the motherland. You know, that's 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 the other perspective. And so finally, Russell Shaw talked about what the election meant internally. Uh, again, sort of playing off of the results, how while the DPP did win uh, the president's uh, uh, office. Uh, they did lose out in the legislative body. And so, you know, some of that might have to do with uh, party fatigue. We have seen uh, a DPP president uh, and legislative body over the last eight years. And uh, there's many other factors that can contribute to either the fatigue of the party or just general change in uh, political sentiment uh, from just the overall changing security environment around Taiwan or the the sort of the economic um uh, stagnation. I don't want to say stagnation, but slowing of China, uh, Taiwan's economy that could have certainly affected that. And so um, 
if I could just kind of go over the quick results of the election. Yeah. Uh, William Lai, he is uh, the new president-elect. He is uh, with the Democratic People's Party, uh, which is the same party as the current administration, uh, Tsai Ing-wen. So they'll be inaugurated in May. Uh, at that time, we'll have a new legislative body as well. Uh, his party, the DPP, uh, will only have 51 seats, uh, less than half of the 113 seats in Taiwan's legislative body which means they won't have majority control over the legislative body anymore. Uh, the KMT, the main opposition party, will only have 52 seats. It's still less than a majority, slightly more than what the DPP has, uh, which means neither party has majority control. But there's a third party, the, the TPP, the Taiwan People's Party, which tends to lean a little bit more closely with the KMT on some issues, especially economic issues, I think, that... Uh, the KMT could potentially work with to uh, uh, definitely drive some of the legislative uh, priorities or uh, legislative agenda uh, over the next four years. If we're looking at the election results, to what degree were the cross-strait relations slash the U.S. relations buckets that you, aligned, that you outlined the core versus like domestic political concerns in terms of the actual debate between the parties? Yeah, I, I mean, they definitely uh, are significant, but not the only factor in a lot of these um, in, in elections. You know, it's I like to try and compare it with U.S. elections. You know, if we think about midterm elections, for example, midterm elections are very local elections compared to presidential elections, which are national and tend to have more of a foreign policy uh, point of view. There's much more discussion about national security, defense, uh, things like that. Um, and so because this was a presidential election, uh, there was more of a discussion on international affairs, on cross-strait relations, of U.S.-Taiwan uh, uh, policy. Um, it did weigh significantly in the election, but it wasn't the only other thing. Another, uh, other big issues uh, were certainly the economy. There's a lot of concern about wage growth versus inflation, um, what that's meant for Taiwan over the last few years. What does it mean for uh, the fact that Taiwan's economy is starting to slow down a little bit? Uh, they the thing about the Taiwanese economy is it actually did pretty well during COVID. Um, there was a lot of demand in the United States and Europe and elsewhere for things like personal electronics, computers, Pelotons, uh, as people were uh, working more from home. And so that really boosted Taiwan's exports. But now as the world sort of comes off of that, it means fewer exports, uh, fewer demand for, for Taiwan exports. But what does that mean for Taiwan's economic growth? And so um, there's concerns that things will continue to slow down a little bit. Another issue is housing. The ability to have affordable housing in, in Taiwan uh, is a big concern, especially for the youth who don't have uh, great job experience, who, who aren't making the same level of wages that perhaps their parents have, but you know, obviously want to start lives of their own, and uh, which can hopefully potentially contribute to a low birth rate, <laughs> uh, fighting off the low birth rate that Taiwan has. And so there's, there's a, a myriad of issues. Um, uh, a lot domestic, but uh, as as we've already said, uh, there is more of a cross-strait focus, U.S.-China uh, uh, focus, sorry, U.S.-Taiwan focus, a little bit of U.S.-China focus in there as well. But really, I think the top thing, the top line uh, of, of of perhaps the of the entire election was really uh, the candidates themselves weren't too far apart on a lot of the uh, big ticket items. Uh, such as cross-strait relations or, or U.S.-Taiwan relations. There's, there's definitely a, a sentiment, I think, shared across all three of the major parties that obviously the U.S. 
Taiwan relationship is is one of probably the most important relationships for Taiwan. The the cross-strait relations are complicated for a, a variety of reasons. One being the KMT does traditionally have more have has traditionally had more of a conversation with Beijing on on things like uh, uh, economic opportunities, trade, investment, tourism, things that, uh, uh, again, they, they, they kind of hope to rely on in this past election. And the DPP has said they are, they are willing to uh, communicate with Beijing, but uh, Beijing has consistently, sent, for the last eight years, have, have basically said they don't want to talk with the DPP at all. Uh, that includes the Tsai administration, especially William Lai. Uh, who they perceive as sort of a, a pro-independence radicalist. Uh, I, I can't remember all the, the the nasty terms they've used for him, but uh, you know it, this is the problem, of course, with uh, uh, international negotiations. Is it does take two parties to to actually talk. Uh, but like I was saying, it, there's on the top line issues. There's there's really not a whole lot of daylight in between them. Probably the biggest difference is that I think the KMT and the TPP. Uh, delivered a message where they are much more willing and able because Beijing is is open to it, uh, communicating with Beijing on on certain issues than the TPP is able to do or was is able to do. Yeah, I think what I'm really curious about, I think I haven't seen this discussed as much in the post-ops after the election results. I would love for you to talk about the past eight years of Taiwanese politics, just because a, crucially, this was the first time a Taiwanese political party has retained power um, going into that third term. So that's a key, key detail. But two, just from an uh, American perspective, um, Taiwan um, has, as a topic has just become much more central in our political debates in a way that just wasn't true before 2016. Everything from, once again, the U.S.-China relationship and the tensions there to the COVID period to the debate around semiconductor manufacturing. We'd love for you just to talk about the past eight years and how that may have played a role in the continuance of the DPP's power. So I was, I was actually in Taiwan for the election. I was lucky enough to observe it firsthand and, and speak with some people there. And so um, maybe some anecdotes I could provide. It, obviously, they don't necessarily reflect <clears throat> the entire Taiwan population, but I think they are helpful in sort of understanding why uh, why this election unfolded the way it did. And so some of the people that we spoke with there, um, the way that Taiwan's election works is you can you have three votes that you cast. You vote for which president you would like you vote for your direct uh, legislative representative and then you vote for a party which uh, gets a proportional um, uh, distribution of uh, 34 seats within the legislative body and what a lot of people uh, wanted to do at that time or what a lot of people said they were interested in doing was splitting the vote between the live as a presidency continuing what Tsai administration has done but also um, you know, find an, a new party, uh, new opportunity, checks and balances, whatever you want to call it, uh, party fatigue, uh, so that there's, there is much more of this mix. And so I think what that has to do with like the last eight years of Taiwan politics is another thing that people have said about this election was it's not, a, it wasn't as emotionally charged as in the past. So in 2016, when President Tsai Ing-wen came in, she was she came in off the heels of sort of the sunflower movement, which was called at the time, um, which was in response to uh, Ma Ying-jeou, the former president, and the KMT, uh, and their efforts to expand economic uh, uh, partnership, an economic partnership with 
with China. There's a lot of opposition to that. Colin Jia, actually, as well, the, the, the candidate for the TPP, also came out of that movement at the time. Uh, and so when she came in, there was a, a resounding support for her. Um, you know, she, she won with a, a, lar- a significant um, public opinion um, and, and, and sort of carried that mandate on uh, since during that time. The time since then, though, however, there, there has been sort of a, a bit of growing frustration with the DPP and then its ability to, uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's always hard to keep everyone happy all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but we did see in 2020 when President Tsai was reelected, this is actually uh, interesting enough that this election, 2020's election, had the lowest voter turnout of, of any uh, election at the time because um, a lot of the, the sense was, uh, the common uh, thought was that uh, President Tsai was such a shoe in to re-win the uh, election that people just didn't even bother showing up. And so um, that goes to show, I think, there was a lot of continuity there uh, in, in, in interest in, in her uh, continuing. What it means now, I think, based off of that is people, I think, appreciate the, the, uh, the way that she sort of governed uh, Taiwan and uh, William Lai, who is the current vi- vice president, when he comes in, is seen to be much more of a continue. Is seen to mostly be a continuation of that leadership, but there is a, a growing dissatisfaction with the DPP as a party. There's a growing dissatisfaction with the KMT as well, and so that's why we saw uh, the third party, the TPP, which only has eight seats, but an important eight seats. Uh, in Taiwan's legislature as a, as a growing third option as well. Um, I'm hoping basically what all this means is that uh, it offers sort of greater debate within Taiwan's politics. Hopefully it doesn't end up, you know, slowing things down <laughs> as we might experience here in Washington uh, where things become a little bit too partisan. Uh, I hope it actually offers more uh, uh, debate and transparency in, into Taiwan's uh, uh, policymaking. You know, something I'm curious about then, given these parties, and maybe you would re- you can reject this if the metaphor doesn't quite work, but where would you place the KMT, the DPP, and the you know TPP on the like, uh, left-right center spectrum to kind of help American listeners understand better? A bad analogy, I would say, um, is the DPP is much more left. Uh, and so uh, it, they are the Democratic Progressive Party. And so they... They tend to uh, 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 promote more of the traditional progressive ideas, much more emphasis on uh, equality, uh, 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 diverse marriage rights, um, labor interests, environment, for example. While the KMT might be more uh, uh, sort of sort of on the conservative side, uh, you know, more of a rejection uh, against non-traditional uh, family uh, constructs. Um, more of a, 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 a leaning toward um, business interests, for example. I, you know, these are these are poor analogies, of course, but that's probably how I would differentiate the two. And then the TPP is still a relatively new party. They do uh, tend to align more with the KMT, but the way that they've presented themselves is a third party middle party. So, you know, somewhere in between the two of them. And what that means that 
I think we're <laughs> we're going to find figuring out. out. They have, yeah. they have eight seats to kind of make that a little clearer. So okay, in this last section, then I like you introducing the work that you do along the lines of the technology, um, the economics, and the national security. Obviously, I don't think Taiwan is going to be a huge hot button issue for the American political system during this election year in this country. But obviously, it's going to be a huge issue at a policy level and going into 2025. So I'd love for you just to kind of unpack the questions or issues or priorities facing the U.S. when it comes to Taiwan and the Northeast um, Asian region you cover. Um, so let's start with technology. What are the open questions or just areas you are interested in exploring that you think other policymakers should focus on? It's something that I think a lot of people have already paid attention to, but when we talk about Taiwan and technology, we have to talk about semiconductor production. Uh, they are the, the world's leading um, producer of high-end semiconductor manufacturing, um, and they're, they're leading, one of their leading semiconductor uh, companies, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, uh, does currently have uh, manufacturing um, uh, ongoing, uh, uh, construction for manufacturing ongoing in Arizona. Uh, as well as Germany and, and Japan and elsewhere. And so, um, you know, there's, I, I wrote about this actually last year. There was a lot of interest about what it means if there was some sort of contingency with China. Uh, you know, what would happen if there's, uh, say, a, a PLA blockade around Taiwan or if there was just an outright invasion where uh, war happened and we can no longer access the chips that China, uh, Taiwan makes. Um, and uh, an estimate we came up, I came up with was um, yeah, pretty significant. If, if the world were to lose access, if the United States were to lose access to the chips made in Taiwan, it could be uh, far worse than what we experienced during COVID, far worse than what we experienced uh, during, say, the Great Recession, uh, the Great Financial Recession of 20, 2009. So pretty significant. About 8% uh, of U.S. GDP would be uh, uh, at risk of, of losing that. And so pretty significant. Taiwan, I think, uh, in their own national interests, they are uh, they are encouraging diversification of supply chains. That's why you see TSMC going into uh, friendly countries like the United States and, and Japan. Uh, but uh, there is also still an interest to keep a lot of that uh, production uh, domestic. Um, they, for example, are not planning to export the the highest end technology that they have. Uh, to the uh, to, for production to the United States. Obviously, they're willing to sell that production, but they want to keep the manufacturing of it at home. And uh, what this means for the United States is Taiwan is actually a really good op uh, market for our semiconductor manufacturing machine industry. Um, the, the, the United States is actually one of the leaders in the uh, semiconductor machine uh, industry, and so uh, so the Taiwan, machines that actually yes. The machines that go into the plant itself, <laughs> right? <laughs> not the not the chips themselves, but the machines that make the chips. Can we stay there for a second? That's really interesting because basically, as you know, the broad story is America is the country that innovated the early, uh, you know, semiconductor microchip revolution. Eventually, it outsources, and the Taiwanese and other countries eventually take the lion's share of the innovation and kind of the outcome there. How is it that we are so dominant at when it comes to the actual machine parts versus the actual assembly? Like, what's the gap between those two things? A lot of factors. <laughs> um, 
the the thing that's often said about the semiconductor manufacturing process is it's very labor, uh, sorry, labor partly, but mostly capital intensive. So your average uh, facility can cost between ten to twenty billion dollars to make nowadays. Um, and one of the things that the U.S. has actually had a disadvantage of is things like capital costs, labor costs, regulatory costs. Uh, actually make building these kind of facilities in the United States uh, anywhere between something like 30 to 80% more expensive than it is in Asia. And so that's why a lot of companies don't even bother really with the manufacturing anymore. Uh, the United States is the leader in the chip design, which is quite different than the manufacturing of it. And so that's where companies have tend to go over the last uh, 20 10 to 20 years. Um, and so then we just simply export the manufacturing to Taiwan, which has proven itself to be, uh, again, a, a leader in that. Uh, but then thankfully, of course, they, they buy the machines, which we make, uh, to help facilitate that production. And again, it's, it's slightly different, uh, costs, uh, to, uh, design and, 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 uh, and cost to market for, uh, the, the various industries. But, from a foreign policy, domestic politics perspective, the reality of, you know, we come up with the designs, we cost effectively build a lot of the parts for the actual factories. It was fine to outsource the actual assembly because if you're not thinking about this through a national security or supply chain resiliency lens, that's all fine. Obviously, that changes with both U.S.-China tensions after 2016, but also just the clear resiliency impacts you had after COVID. We've now done a variety of efforts, including the CHIPS Act back in 2022. How would you assess the American efforts to at least increase our ability to have a degree of uh, semiconductor manufacturing independence? It's uh, slow going, honestly. Recent reports uh, have already said, you know, uh, TSMC and, and Samsung, a, a Korean, a Korean uh, company, uh, are delaying their uh, the manufacturing of their facilities because they're not sure when or, or how much of the actual grant funding from the Chips Act they'll they'll be getting, and so it slows things down. The thing, though, is you know, uh, uh, you know, I think a lot of focus tends to be on the, the the chip itself production, but there's, like I said, there's there's so many different layers to the production process. Um, one of them being the uh, assembly, testing, and packaging side, which is one of the final steps to, uh, I guess, the the actual um, full production process. And uh, actually, the United States has very little of this because it's such a unprofitable business really uh, that it's 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 probably one of the uh, easy first things to be exported as a chain in 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 this uh, supply a link in the supply chain so that's why uh, much of that that assembly testing and packaging happens in taiwan as well and yes the state department and through the chips act they they've got grants and funding to kind of help reshore a lot of this but labor costs are not Cheap in the United States, uh, and regulatory costs to build new facilities are are <laughs> cumbersome, and you know we have to deal with various state and federal regulations that can slow down the process of of getting the clearances to do do a lot of this manufacturing. I mean, it, it, it the United States is is you know obviously the world's number one economy, but uh, you know we have a lot of hurdles, regulatory hurdles here that makes doing business pretty hard sometimes.
Yeah. So I think you covered the intersection of the economics and the technology while there. So we'll just close on the national security part of your work. If we're looking at the choices and the debates the United States needs to be debating this year, 2024, obviously, what are the national security side of those questions? Well, I don't want to spend too much more time on chips, but there's definitely a national national security consideration for the availability of chips. The, The diversification that we're seeing, I think, can help mitigate some of that. So, you know, Instead of just getting all of our, we don't get all of our chips from Taiwan, but <laughs> a significant amount of our chips from Taiwan, uh, as as production comes online domestically in Arizona through TSMC or, or Texas through Samsung or Intel's own um, uh, capital investments, um, we'll, we'll start seeing a lot more domestic production there. Um, and so that's that's chips. Chips is will always be on the mind, I think, of a lot of uh, economists, national security folks. Uh, but to kind of go back to the, the, the hard power security stuff, uh, which is also part of my portfolio, uh, I think there's there's a lot of interest in uh, America's defense industrial base, whether we have the uh, uh, production capacity to not just meet our own needs, but to meet the demand of our our uh, friends and allies. Uh, you know, we just sold 400 uh, tomahawks to Japan. They're sending us uh, Patriot missiles. The the Taiwanese consistently buy uh, military weapons and equipment from the United States on an annual basis. And so making sure that we have the production capacity and that they also, in regard, in their own respective interests, are investing in the right technologies as well, and making sure that, that those things are continuing and possible. And so keeping an eye on on spending levels and how things unfold across the Middle East and Europe uh, to, again, be able to match supply with demand. I think that is an excellent place to leave. Riley, are there any other bits of writing or events you'd recommend that listeners and viewers to Arsenal Democracy follow up on if they're interested in hearing more about your work? Yeah, uh, you know, across the Hudson.org website, uh, we have a variety of papers and events that talk about Taiwan and Japan, the Quadrilateral Strategic Dialogue, uh, the the Quad partnership that we have with Japan, Australia, and India. There's, I think, a lot of material out there uh, if people are interested in this, but more to come because there's there's always, uh, there's just so much more work that needs to be done uh, as we, uh, you know, hope to not just build our own uh, defense and support our strategic interests, but on economic issues as well. Um, I, I don't think enough people pay enough attention to the economic interests of not just countries at a national level, but businesses and and individuals as well. Well said, Riley. Thank you for joining me on Arsenal of Democracy. Of course. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back with weekly episodes.